This comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor extortionists will inherit God's kingdom. A number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago you were on that list. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. Thank you, Allie. So, we've said that the ten words, we, this is actually my first time, um, but Dylan and Chaz have said, the ten words are not so much a set of do's and don'ts, arbitrarily handed down to us by some authority, even the authority, as it were. That is, they are not law in the legal sense. Of course, Israel would contextualize and codify the ten words into legal parameters uh, in this kind of wandering nation, kind of birth of a nation stage of life. And that's the book of Leviticus, right? They took the ten words and then took from the ten words and made legal code for them. But in and of themselves, they're, they're first speaking, the ten commandments as we probably more familiarly know them, are given not as legal ease, but stated as natural law. They are stated not in legal ease, but as natural law, like that of gravity. A law that governs reality, setting its limitations and potentials. Or as one author notes, God's general will concerning all of human life is revealed in the form of the Ten Commandments. Even when this revelation needs contextualizing in varied social, cultural environments. Specifically, our living in right relationship with the Ten Words governs our experiences, experience of life as either free or enslaved. Life in the promised land with which God created for and leads us to, or life in the chaos of choices, our choices, other choices, and of chance. The essential, fundamental, atomic nature of the law that the Ten Words reveals is testified to by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the faith family in Rome. The faith family, kind of like ours, is a primarily non-Jewish community. They're trying to integrate a Hebrew history into their everyday Greek or Western worldview. To these people, Paul writes, When outsiders, Gentiles, who have never heard God's law, follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed upon us from without, but rather woven into the very fabric of creation. The ten words are woven into the very fabric of creation. There is something deep within them, within us, that echoes God's yes and no is right and wrong. Because the work of the law is written on our hearts, as another translation of Romans 2 would put it, is why we feel the weight, sometimes uncomfortably so, of the ten words especially as we press further into their structured sounding. The further we go, the deeper we go into the ten words, the heavier the weight seems to be. Let me explain. It's long been understood that the ten words speak first and foremost of life with God. That's our little tagline, right? Keep it simple, loving God, loving others. The first four of the ten speak of life with God. 
have no other gods besides me. This is where life begins. And so, because that's where life begins, we make no images to serve. We make no vision of life, no way of forming life, no way of going and getting life that's apart from looking to the living God, following life with God, living in His way now and forever. And so, therefore, we don't, the warning is don't twist. Don't twist or make false I am. Don't take my name in vain. This won't go well for you. Don't take His word and character for granted. Don't lose the awe of wonder, the fear of the Lord, but rather maintain it. Maintain that awe and wonder. How? By Sabbathing and working. By being in the rhythm that continues life. Life continues in rhythm with God's good design and destiny. We rest in God's work and doing the work God made for us. This is what life with God looks like. We keep God first. That's where life begins. That's where life stays. We keep following God through life, not setting up our own visions and images of how life should be, not taking for granted the life that He's given us, the word that He's spoken, the character He's, he's, he's demonstrated in what He's done for us. And we do that by living life continuously in rhythm and step, in resting in His work, in working in the, the work that He's made for us. And the next six words then... Speak to life with others. So first four, life with God. This is kind of the, just the general breakdown, right? And the next six, speak to life with others. Honor, father, and mother. Life begins relating well to those whom we are given to. Not who we choose, but who were chosen for us. Life begins. Our life in the free land is not determined by what is done to us, but how we relate, treat, honor others which is no easy task, right? Considering how easily we are angered by our, <laughs> the, our, those in authority over us, how easily we're angered by those nearest to us. And so, we press further in. The command is no, take, no taking of life. Protect it, care for it. Be angry, but don't sin, as we said last week. And move further, we go into adultery, no stealing, and then back out into no false witnessing, no coveting. Again, where life continues, relating well to what we have been given. We start, life starts with relating well to whom we're given to. Life continues by relating well, right, rightly to what we have been given. But it's in the middle of these truths, where life begins and how it continues, that we feel the apple landing on our heads. We feel the pangs of gravity's law most specifically in these middle parts. In some ways, we can assent but not submit to the big truths. They are, after all, cosmic. Life begins with God. They're, they're internal, like honor, respect, coveting. Like that seems to be a little more internal, right? Or at least we, we, can, we, can, um, we can get away with not letting others see where our hearts are really after. These big truths are hidden in the heart of the heavens and thus more easily assumed, avoided, or excused. I mean, after all, God's people have a long history of serving two masters, messing up the Sabbath, having an unbalanced approach to parental and child relationships, and are dismissive to wanting what others have. But in the details between, in the minutia of daily living, in the visions that we go after for life, the things we, we try to use to get what we want in life, the way we actually treat our relationship to God, respect God or not respect God, the way we 
do violence to one another or not do violence, protect life, the way we commit adultery, still or false witness, in those places, in between, in the details of living with God and others, we can either hide from nor help but feel the reality of gravity's grounding. We can't escape these. We can't excuse these. We can't work a way around these. While most of the time we live in the reality of the natural law with little thought. How, many, how often have you thought about gravity? Right? Very little. Most of the time you don't think about it at all. But there are moments when we experience the effect of the ten words inescapable certainty. There are times when we feel the truth of the law of gravity, right? Think about it as a kid. Um, how many times did you try to defy gravity as a kid? Anybody try to jump off a house? Maybe into a pool, maybe onto a trampoline, or like me, like maybe tr- thinking you could swing underneath like a little porch deal to come to find out that you didn't really anchor the rope in very well. And gravity hurt. Gravity was painful. The law of gravity won. I did not beat gravity in that case, right? We, we've all tried that at some level, right? To some degree. We've all tested the bounds of gravity. We've tested the potential of gravity, the limit of gravity. We've enjoyed the, the sensation of feeling like we've escaped the laws of gravity for a minute at a bounce house, right? I mean, who didn't love bounce houses in trampoline parks, right? Those are the, some of the coolest things because you feel like you're floating. You feel like you're free, right? At the same time, haven't we all felt the weight of gravity, the pangs of gravity um, that come when maybe like from your sibling, not saying this ever happened or that I ever did this, maybe throws a dirt clod that has more than dirt in it and it hits you and you feel the sting of the law of gravity, right? It was thrown up, it came down, and it came down hard, right? Again, none of you have ever done that. You've never thrown anything at anybody. You've never been hit by some, an object that somebody else has thrown. But what allowed the object to come to you in an arc was gravity, right? It pulled it to you. The law pulled it down, and you felt its weight. And now, at some point, even if you weren't thinking about it, the truth of the law was unnervingly real. And I suspect, at least for most of us, myself included, that we felt gravity's discomfort when Allie was reading Paul's words to his face family of Corinth. Because in some way or another, we've all found ourselves, and we all have found those that we love, somewhere on the left side of butt. And such were some of you, Paul says. And such were some of you. We've all found ourselves in the list, in the litany of those who have tried to defy the ten words, right? Who lived in a way they were attempting to defy gravity. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in Jesus. The truth is, we'll find that like the, woman and the women and men of faith in Corinth, we've all, in some way or another, willfully, ignorantly, in response to desire or circumstances, attempted to defy the gravitational force of the ten words. That's why Christine can read for us as Nehemiah prayed. Like, I'm not just praying for the sins of everyone around me, I'm including myself in that. And not just myself, but those who have come before me and those who will come after me. 
And there's no place where the law's reality is felt more intimately and intensely, more immediately than in the bonds of trust, in covenant and in community. Look again at the construct of the final six of the ten words. See how they move from relationships chosen for us? From parents in the fifth word, honor your father and mother. To siblings, if you remember when we talked about thou shalt not murder last week, right? What were the examples that we gave? What did we talk about? We talked about Cain and Abel, the first murder. Where's the first, where's the first place in your own life where you became almost so angry that you, that you wanted to say you hated someone? Who was that person? For a lot of us, maybe it's not you, it was our brother or sister, right? It was our sibling. Or maybe a cousin who you grew up with or somebody really close to you familiarly, right? That was kind of alongside of you, maybe a little bit ahead of you, maybe a little bit behind you, but somebody you shared life with in that kind of way, right? Like the intensity of our, our emotions spill out in here. That's why when um, uh, Chaz read for us last week out of 1 John 1, when, when it's talking about loving God, that you can't hate your brother and love God. You can't say, I love God and hate my brother. It doesn't just say hate humanity or hate a person. It specifically says a sibling, right? Like, because that's where a lot of our, our issues start. They start in the home. They start with our parents. They start with our siblings. And we move into now from this kind of things that are chosen for us, relationships that we really don't have a lot of control over, right? We don't choose those people. They're chosen for us. We move now into relationships that require volition, to some degree. Again, in the time of this was written, choice in marriage wasn't exactly like choice it is now, but there was still a, a willfulness to enter into some, some sort of relationship. We move into relationships that require volition, choice, neighbor, marriage. And thus, these relationships have bonds that are spoken or unspoken, but have clear boundaries and bonds. Relationships that necessitate for their survival, trust and fidelity. A faithfulness demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. And if you notice that the shared center of this construction is the seventh word. And don't worry, we'll talk about the, other, the others as we go through and how this construction works and what, what's all happening here. But I just want to point out, at the center of this, the shared center is you shall not commit adultery, the seventh word. Here at the center, we are taken directly into what is meant to be the most fundamental for flourishing human relations, marriage. As we saw in Genesis 2, even before sin could separate and destroy, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and God took one of his ribs and made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the beginning, God crafts us for covenantal bonds. From the beginning, God crafts us for, for covenantal bonds. Life whole and holy cannot be experienced in isolation whether a chosen physical or emotional separation, a detachment from relationships, or in an acculturated and practical individualism like the one that we live in, right? We are made not only for intimacy, 
but intimacy in a trusting and committed relationship. And while we won't all, like Jesus, experience marriage as a manifestation of this covenant bond, not all of us are there yet, not all of us may be there. Nevertheless, we all, like Jesus, are to bind ourselves to God and others for mutual flourishing and live in a way that nurtures and respects that bond. In a word, we are to live with fidelity. Fidelity. A faithfulness. Literally the definition of faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief. Demonstrated. Faithfulness demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. Like you shall not murder, as Chad's mentioned last week, you shall not commit adultery has a larger scope than the physical act of adultery. Theologians often call this the rule of categories and contend that each commandment applies to every sin of the same kind. Again, this is how then the, 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 the people of God will create their Levitical law. They'll begin to work their way out from this centering point of, of these ten words. So like the first half of Paul's list from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the reach of the seventh word expands beyond the particular act of adultery into the summarizing descriptor common in our scriptures, sexual immorality. That's what it it's kind of contends, right? If, if don't take life is all the violence goes all the way back into anger against others, not just, not just anger, but a hatred for others that leads to some sort of violence against them. Don't commit adultery goes all the way into sexual immorality and all the things that you could imagine about that. If you were to say, read the remainder of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which I'm not going to do right now for the sake of a few younger years, but I strongly encourage you to do, you'd see how our physical existence and our spiritual existence have been fundamentally intertwined from our beginnings. And not merely individually is our spirit and physicality intertwined, but it's actually meant to be for the flourishing in communion with another. And most essentially, in a committed and intimate communion with another. And so, just like the sixth word, the seventh word is not merely a prohibition against what even us Gentiles know in our hearts to be something fundamentally destructive and dishonoring. Adultery in no time or place has ever been promoted, right? It's not celebrated. Even if its punishments no longer immediately or immediate and mortally costing the offender, like it does in Leviticus. Even if all of our television shows may kind of pass it off as a non-value, the truth is, all of us know, when we talk about adultery, the twistedness of it, right? Inherently, every culture in society knows it, and has always known it. The seventh word, then, is not merely a prohibition against that thing that at its fundamental nature... All, every human knows, severs, and breaks. The word is also a directive to nurture then the bonds of commitment, to stand against anything within or around us as individuals or a community that would diminish the relationships we are bound to, that we are covenanted to. Just like murder was don't just not kill but protect life, just don't commit adultery is not just don't commit adultery, it's protect the thing that you're covenant to, the relationship that you're bound to. Nurture the thing that, that, that is the source of life for you. 
Fundamentally, the seventh word tells us to consider the essential nature of trust in living well and free with others and to act and behave in a trustworthy, loyal, and relationship-strengthening manner if we want to live free. Remember, that's the whole deal, right? We can, we can not follow this and find ourselves back where we started in Exodus. Where it was that? That was back in enslavement, right? But if we want to live free, then we have to live in a way that actually aligns with reality, with the good that God has created. For as one author notes, when our bound relationships erode, life cannot flourish. Social trust, says David Brooks, is a measure of the moral quality of a society, of whether the people and institutions in it are trustworthy, whether they keep their promises and work for the common good. When people in a church lose faith or trust in God, the church collapses. When people in a society lose faith or trust in their institutions, including marriage, right, and in each other, the nation collapses. What is true societally is true of the foundation of our society, the covenantal bonds of family and faith. When trust erodes, the world as we experience it collapses, even if just for a moment. We've all experienced this, haven't we? Haven't we felt the crushing sensation of broken trust? Trust broken by another? Trust we've broken? Listen, while some modern commentators narrow in on the sexual component of adultery and thus the many implications for and connections between our sexuality and spirituality, topics which are undoubtedly relevant to our cultural moment. At the heart of the seventh word, I believe, is how we are keeping our promises and working for the good in our bound, committed relationships. Or how we're living in a manner that severs those bonds, and in doing so, enslave ourselves again. Attach ourselves, entangle ourselves to something or someone else. Because that's the slipperiness of adultery. There is a reason why adultery specifically became the metaphor for life lived in duality in our scriptures. Life lived with God and other gods. Life lived in the self-sacrifice of marriage and the selfishness of lust. Life lived in loyalty to those that were with, and life lived pursuing something beyond what we're getting from them. When describing what led the people of Israel to be exiled from the promised land, and thus once again under the yoke of slavery, God uses the imagery of an adulterous relationship, of broken trust that is more than a failure to do something. It's not simply that that someone just didn't do something. It's more of a choice to be with someone or something else. It's more of the entanglement with something else. This is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 3. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So as one who wanted to go against the covenant, one who wanted to act treacherous, right? Like it's not necessarily that like it's just simply a willful, like I'm against this person, but you understand like the weight of this, right? The treachery that's happened. Like this was an underneath, under conniving thing. There's something was going on 
with God's people and with God, which they were longing to be with someone else, to get out of underneath God in some sort of way, or to have God and have something else too, right? There's a treachery. There's a, there's a, 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 a willingness to, or a desire to step out of the covenant into something else. That makes sense. Or here's what it says in Isaiah. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. Behind the door and the doorpost, you've, you've gone after other gods, deserting me. You have, and this is where the adulterous language comes out, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You've broken our covenant and made it with another. You have loved their bed and you have looked on nakedness. You have looked on the full exposure. You've now made yourself one with them. Adultery is the manifestation of a heart divided against itself. Against the other whose bound is necessary for flourishing, whose bond is necessary for flourishing, for being whole and holy. It is a heart that, is, that wants something beyond what it has. Not just in a covetous way, but in a way that's unwilling to be tightly bound to the thing and committed to the thing which actually brings its life. That's why Proverbs says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. In other words, to commit adultery is a brainless act. It leads to nothing good. He who does it destroys himself, the proverb says. Those who, who, who break the covenant, who go and try to sever the covenant, the things that act, the, the life with others that actually lead to life, do nothing but destroy themselves and the life that they're after. Fundamentally, adultery is the breaking of covenant, a severing of the bond between the ones whom life is made and who we make a good life with. And it's done through an entanglement with something or someone else. And while adultery in all its forms does not always lead to immediate end of a covenant, as the story of Hosea so plain, painfully and graciously attests, right? The story of God's prophet who intentionally marries a woman who has no desire to be in covenant and keep covenant and who continues to go after the covenant breaker over and over and over again, right? Our story as the scripture are full of this truth, right? That our natural bent, sinful bent, is to pull away from one another and to break covenant with one another. And yet God continues to pursue, continue to go after, continues to draw back into his faithfulness. But the reality is when trust is eroded at this most bound and intimate level, the damage takes significant time and effort to heal. Right? Which is why no adultery is the seventh foundational word. Because when we get down to this level of breaking of covenant, we break things in a way that are just really hard to put back together. Again, our scriptures are full of, and they testify to, that the implications of breaking covenant while they reverberate are not complete and not forever. Praise Jesus, right? They're not with God, and they don't have to be with one another. But at its base, committing adultery breaks apart the thing which is meant 
to allow us to flourish in life. The bonds of covenant. Similar to murder, adultery does not usually begin where it ends, but it develops in ways of living with others that does not intentionally cultivate the thing we live in. Adultery begins with ways of living with those that we're committed to, that we're bound to, with lack of intentionality to cultivate the thing that we're actually in, a covenantal bonded relationship. And to do so through the mutual submission one of another out of reverence for Christ. That's how Paul puts it, at least, in his letter to the Ephesians. This is what he says. Out of respect for Christ. One translation says, out of, out of reverence for Christ. Be courteously reverent to one another. Submit to one another. How do we avoid getting to the place, just like we talked about last week, how do we avoid, like, avoid not murdering? How do we keep ourselves from moving from hatred like Cain, into murder? How do we, move, how do we keep ourselves from moving from, from, from a longing, a lust, a desire, a lack of satisfaction, a, a uh, whatever it is that pulls us into adultery, into the actual division of relationship? Well, out of respect for Christ, we are courteously reverent to one another. Wives, Paul says, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. How do we keep ourselves from committing adultery? We understand and support those that we're in covenant with. The husband provides leadership, says Paul, to his wife, the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering. So the way that we do this is not by domineering, not by ch- but cherishing. So that just as the church submits to Christ, as he exercises such leadership, wives likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. What if we live that way with those that we are bound to? That everything we did and said was designed to bring the best out of the ones that we are bound to. Even if that thought just went through our head, in the midst of whatever might be drawing us away. Anger, lust, dissatisfaction, frustration, boredom, the enemy, culture. What if, what if in the moments when we felt drawn to something else, to someone else, we remembered that Christ that everything he did and said was designed to bring the best out of us. And that we are, in the same relationships that we're in, made to do the same thing that Christ did for us. To draw out, bring out the best of the other. Paul goes on, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. That is how husbands ought to love their wives, and listen, when they do so, and I think this is true beyond just husbands and wives, when we, when we actually go all out in our love for the ones that we're bound to, when we actually understand and support the ones that we're bound to, when we actually do everything we say and do is designed to bring out the best of those that we're bound to, we're really doing ourselves a favor. 
since really we're already one in marriage, since really it's life together, bound together, that allows us to flourish. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, says Paul, the church, since we are a part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me, says Paul, is the way Christ treats the church. That's clear. How Jesus bound himself to others and the way he was faithful to those covenants. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. Listen, whether we are bound in marriage or in friendship, in covenants or in a faith community, each of us finds ourselves joined to others in significant ways. Likewise, we are, as the Apostle Paul says, bound to Jesus, who willfully bound himself to us, showing us how we might live with fidelity, with faithfulness demonstrated by loyalty and support, to staying together and bringing out the best in one another to the glory of our Father. So, now it's time to let gravity do its work. For just a few minutes, we're going to ask the Spirit to examine our hearts in our most bonded relationships. Because listen, we can hear all these things, we can think all, think, hear all this stuff, we can be hopefully not super confused. Um, we can hear all these things and then kind of go in one ear, out the other. Or if you're like most people, probably you're hearing this for another person. Right? You're hearing this and thinking about the others in the relationship and not yourself. Maybe you're thinking about your spouse or your best friend, your, the, the people that you're most bonded to and connected to. But for a few moments, we actually want to let God speak to us, to listen to what God might say to us, to reveal to us where we find ourselves under the weight of the seventh word. So for a couple minutes, we're going to just have a quiet moment where you can ask the Spirit to examine your heart to ask if there be any grievous way, as the, as the psalmist t- teaches us, right? Is there any grievous way within me? Any grievous way in which you're living? Any way that's off step, that creates harm, that doesn't nurture the bonds, but rather severs them? And let the Spirit reveal to us how we are nurturing, how we are going all out in love for the relationships that we're in, and how we're failing to do so. Because the truth is we're all failing at it in some sort of way or another, right? But then, just for a moment, I want you to ask this. Who's encouraging and challenging you to return and remain faithful? There's a reason Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians. There's a reason we speak these truths to one another on a weekly basis when we come together. It's because we need to encourage each other to be faithful. Because like the seventh commandment assumes, our tendency is unfaithfulness, lack of faithfulness. And so we need others in our lives, not to just encourage us to be faithful, but to challenge us when we're wanting to be unfaithful. 
So think about who God's placed in your life to do that. Who's doing that right now? And then ask this question. Who can you do the same for? Because just as God's brought others into your life to encourage you and challenge you, maybe in this season of life, in our faith family, in your family, in your workplace, there might be those who God wants you to encourage and challenge to be faithful to their bonds. So let me pray for this. Now give us just about three, four minutes of quiet. And you'll, we'll leave the questions up on the screen and you can just have a quiet moment with the Lord. Father, I thank you that you, your desire is for us to know the freedom and the flourishing that comes from being ones who live life bound to others in real, true, and meaningful ways. I thank you that, Lord, in your great patience and mercy, in your graciousness and sacrifice, you have fought, 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 fought to keep the the bonds of our relationship with you together. And so remembering what Christ has done, looking to Him as the way to be faithful ourselves. May for these next few moments, may Your Spirit speak. May You reveal, encouraging us to continue to press in and press on in ways that are good and true and beautiful. Father, in giving us the courage, Father, to confess and to share with others where we are struggling. I thank you for brothers and sisters who long for wholeness in me and in one another. All this we pray in your son's name.